The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. WQAD Podcast Network. The Cities with Jim Mertens, a production of WQPT, PBS for the Quad Cities region, a podcast in partnership with WQAD. What's going on in the Quad Cities? Activities, events, fun, politics, sports, local issues and opinions. And now, your host, Jim Mertens. I'm Jim Mertens, this is The Cities, and when the pandemic first hit, we worried about two things, our health and our jobs. A Western Illinois University professor combined the two to look at the health of our economy, and his textbook is called Pandemic Economics. It looks at the macro and micro impact of this worldwide pandemic that's known as COVID-19. Thomas Sadler, join me from Macomb. You and your student have been living through this pandemic. Obviously, this became very quickly a topic that you wanted to put into the classroom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in our economics classes, we talk a lot about things like uh, recessions and shocks to the economy. And so there's no bigger shock to the economy than a global pandemic. So it actually fit pretty well within the flow of our courses. And so it was pretty clear that we would need to address this anyway in our courses that talk about the macro economy and talk about what happens when an economy slows down but it also became pretty clear that it would be a pretty interesting and compelling topic for its own class which is what became pandemic economics well you take a look at history and you think of the great depression and then more recently you think of the great recession but like you said there has never been anything like this if for no other reason just the speed that it occurred Yeah, that's right. And what's different about this, especially compared to the Great Depression and the Great Recession that you mentioned, is that this was a deliberate recession that we remember back to March and April of last year of 2020, that once it became clear that the virus was spread all throughout our country, we realized we need to start shutting things down, shutting aspects of the economy down, shutting businesses down. And so this was a deliberate recession. And so we deliberately sent people home from work and economic activity started to plunge at the same time. And so this was a very different situation. We had not experienced that. Although some of the recessionary effects that we've been observing now for almost a year do have parallels with these previous downturns like the Great Recession and the Great Depression. Has this really put managed economy, so to speak, to the test? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so from the perspective of a lot of the things that we talk about in class, we talk about things like economic policy and economic policy has been really important. We saw a big fiscal stimulus package last year where we were talking about the extension of unemployment benefits and stimulus checks that we received in the mail. And there's more conversation about that right now. If we're going to receive more checks in the mail from the federal government and unemployment insurance being extended. So this has been a test of how to manage the economy in a period of time, not only when there's a downturn in economic activity, but the virus continues to spread. So we're living in a world that's experiencing two crises 
simultaneously, and that's a really difficult environment for policy. Well, and, and really uncharted territory in so many different ways. Now, you write that a trade-off between public health and economic health led to widespread problems. I want to talk about the problems in a moment, but was there any other choice than the government's getting involved? No, I don't think so. I don't think there was any other choice. And so there's this interesting debate that's been going on among economists and, and policymakers about the extent to which a country should prioritize health first. You know, it's pretty clear that we don't want the virus to spread to the extent to which that it could if it's left unchecked. We want to limit the amount of people that suffer from the spread of the virus. So it's pretty clear that we want to prioritize health early on. However, when we're sheltering in place, there are other problems that arise. People become anxious. People are isolated. The level of depression goes up. And so these social costs start emerging at the same time, and it becomes pretty clear that we've got to balance economic activity and public health. And so we need to start figuring out ways, what we were thinking last year, to open businesses back up. And so here's where the balance between the economy and health started coming into play, because as soon as we started easing restrictions and people started going back to work, especially by the end of the summer and into the early fall last year, we started seeing the cases rise again. And so this became a really interesting trade-off that we have to face in terms of society as a whole. How do, we, how do we balance economic costs with public health benefits? Well, and the other and, thing it seems to me is that, you know, when you think of economics, those of us who didn't study economics, and I apologize for that, you just think of it okay. as being numbers and kind of detached from uh, 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 the, the, the sociology part of, of, of our environment. This really puts a face on economics. Yeah, absolutely. So economics has to do with the incentives that are involved with our, our material existence, of course, having to do with our jobs and providing for families and that sort of thing. So we talk about issues like that and trends like that within the field of economics. But we've got to remember that there are people involved. So when the recession get, gets worse, that means the unemployment rate goes up and that means more people are out of work. Those are all individuals. And so then it's the case that if the government can step in and help, it's individuals that are being helped. At the same time, in terms of public health, we've all experienced it. We all know people who have been sick. We've all known people who perhaps have lost their lives during the course of this pandemic. So we've tried to put a face onto these crises, these dual crises that are going on right now. And I think that brings the field of economics to life when we can talk about how all these effects are impacting us on an individual basis and in terms of our communities as well. When it comes to this pandemic, you know, everybody dealt with it in a different way. And you actually took a look at it in a, in a far reaching global way on other countries, how they handled it. And, and let's be honest, I mean, the pandemic hit countries in, in, in a level of severity in very different ways. Plus other countries have you know, different types of society or different types of government uh, involvement in the economy. Did you find rights and wrongs when it comes to the global look at how this pandemic affected the economy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think these results have been coming out now for a little while 
it's been undertaken in many academic contexts. So we've got lots of lists that we can take a look at. It's at certain countries that have fared better than others. One that comes to mind perhaps is New Zealand that we often see at the top of the list. Well, New Zealand had some natural benefits because it's an island country. So it was a little bit easier for them to close off their borders for people coming in. So that helped slow down the spread of the virus, at least from the outside. And so they had to turn internally and figure out how to slow the spread of the virus there. So that's one thing, geographical factors and how connected countries are with other countries. But another factor certainly that's come to mind is governance. And so that's probably the most important thing that has set certain countries apart, that there's a theory called crush and contain, which is kind of catchy. It's got a catchy name to it, crush and contain. So the countries that crushed the virus to the extent to which they could early on, and then when subsequent waves came, infection waves came, they contained it. So not only that, people have to be on board with the plan. People have to buy into collective action. And so a lot of the countries that performed really well over the course of the last year, judged by a decreasing number of cases where they're not struggling as much right now. These are the countries that were able to address the problem head on. They had a lot of public buy-in at the same time, and they managed to stay focused over time. Now, no country has been perfect, but the question has been, what's the optimal mix of policies like sheltering in place and mask wearing and social distancing and quarantines? and closing businesses. What's the optimal method of going about doing these things? And a lot of countries have done really well in balancing these competing objectives. And it seems like the countries, because you pointed out a few, the homogeneous uh, governments or, or societies, when you think of New Zealand, as you pointed out, but you also think of Italy, uh, which was hit very early on, or you think of the uh, uh, Nordic countries, uh, Sweden and Finland, that were doing very well, and then they got a rash of, uh, of, uh, of the epidemic, and then they had to change the way they were doing it. Is the way that the society is structured somewhat easier when it comes to handling the economy vis-a-vis -vis the United States, which has such open borders and is kind of an all-for-one at times, and then everyone's going their own way at other times? Absolutely. Public buy-in is very important. You know, you mentioned Sweden. Sweden's an interesting case because early on, they didn't do all that much to slow the spread of the virus. You know, their mentality is that they wanted to move as quickly as they could to what's called herd immunity when the majority of the population is immune to the virus. But they did have to pull back because they were having a very hard time with that. So that's kind of at one end of the spectrum, that idea. At the other end of the spectrum, China, of course, most famously where the virus originated and they were struggling early, but they contained it pretty early on as well. And they're not in the top 10 of countries right now in terms of the number of confirmed cases, even though they have the highest population in the world. And a lot of that has to do with public buy-in. They're also much more authoritarian than we are. And so their system there is not gonna work here. And so it's a combination of having a very clear vision, having full information, conveying that information to the public, and then having public buy-in. You know, one thing that's interesting about the United States is that a lot of these decisions were decentralized, as we know, that it was left up to the states and has been over the course of the last year or so in terms of figuring out what to do, going through the stages when things are open, when things are closed, including businesses, including schools. 
And so essentially we've had 50 different methods in the United States of addressing this pandemic and also addressing the economic collapse. So over time, this is gonna make for some great opportunities for research because we're gonna be able to evaluate which states have done better than others. So it has to do with policy and it has to do with public buy-in from the people in terms of what they wanna do as well. Now, of course, this is a textbook that you wrote. It doesn't have all the answers, but it is designed to ask the big questions for your students. What are the big questions we should be asking right now? That's a really good question. So this textbook, I'm glad you brought it up. It's called Pandemic Economics and it's in production right now. And so the date of publication here is uh, next month is March of 2021. So it should be out pretty soon. A lot of questions. So the pandemic phase includes the shutdown and then the recession and then economic recovery, which will eventually come. That always comes after recession. So one question is what's the optimal level of shutdown? So we've talked a little bit about the balance between health and the economy. Well, we wanna preserve human life. We wanna crush and contain the virus as much as we possibly can, but we also at the same time can't put everybody out of work. Or if we do send people home, we've got to support them in terms of public policy. We've got to have income assistance. So what's the optimal balance between health and economic activity? And then, so that's with the shutdown. Then with the second interval, with the recession, how long should we be happy with a decline in economic activity? You know, that's a very painful thing for the country to go through as we know now, as we experienced in the great recession in 2008 and 2009. This is not an experience that we enjoy. We don't like it to happen for a long period of time. So at some point soon, we want to start propping the economy back up. We want to start stimulating the economy. And what extent should that happen over time? And then also in terms of economic recovery, what's that going to look like over time? Because that's intertwined with business activity. It's intertwined with us going back to restaurants, going back out and spending our money that's intertwined with schools opening up. And so how does a process of economic recovery unfold as well? So the book talks about that along with many other topics. There are many other topics addressed. And so it's kind of a first attempt from an economics perspective to analyze what the pandemic is going to look like. And it's certainly not the final chapter is what you're saying, because like you said, I mean, the future is going to be very interesting based on what has happened over the last 12 months. Absolutely. And I think, you know, hopefully by the fall of this year or maybe early next year, when this pandemic is over and we can identify the fact that economic recovery is underway, then we'll be able to start comparing this pandemic phase to previous major recessions like the Great Recession and the Great Depression. And that's gonna be pretty interesting to evaluate it. Just in terms of a downturn in economic activity, that's always important. But the length of the recession, that's gonna be important as well. How many people were, were put out of work? How long did it take for these people to get their jobs back? And so these are really big, important questions and we can't answer those now. So it sounds like, uh, that's a good idea for a second edition in about two or three years of this book. Thomas Sadler, a Western Illinois University economics professor who has written the textbook Pandemic Economics, which is available in March.
Thanks for listening to The Cities with Jim Mertens. And watch The Cities Thursday nights at 7, Sunday afternoon at 4, and Monday night at 6 on WQPT, PBS for the Quad Cities region. WQAD Podcast Network. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.